Good morning. My name is Sam. I'm the Associate Pastor at Christ City and it's my joy to open up God's Word with you this morning. So last weekend, my family and I went with some friends to the Sunshine Coast. we never taken our car onto the ferry before, so we made sure to leave our house with plenty of buffer time to make sure we met the ferry timing. But when we got into the Sea to Sky Highway, there was a jam that was snaking all the way to Horseshoe Bay. At this point, you need to know two things about me. First, whenever I'm driving, I'm always looking out for a shortcut. The second thing is, I have a terrible sense of direction. It's a potent combination. So on this fateful day, confronted with a long jam and a ferry to catch, we found a shortcut on Google Maps. Well, at least we thought we did. At first, it was great. There was no traffic the entire way, and we managed to reach Horseshoe Bay with plenty of time to spare. But then we found out that we had keyed in the wrong destination. Even though we'd arrived at Horseshoe Bay, it was the wrong part of the ferry terminal. So for our car to board the ferry, what we had to do was we had to go back the way we came, and to cut a long story short, we missed our ferry. What we learned is that in order to know how to get somewhere, we need to know exactly where we're going. And so this is our question this morning, Christ City. Where are we going? Not where are we going immediately after this video, but where is our life headed? This is the question the psalmist is calling us to ask ourselves. For our summer sermon series in the Psalms, each week we're preaching on a psalm from the previous week's Bible reading plan. And so our psalm for this week, Psalm 32, is bringing us on a journey. And as it does so, it calls us to ask the two questions we must ask ourselves for any journey. Where are we going and how are we getting there? Where are we going and how are we getting there? And to answer these questions, the psalmist is giving us three points. The destination, the wrong way to go, and the right way to go. The destination, the wrong way, and the right way. So first, the destination. The destination is this, the blessed life, a life of true happiness and flourishing. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The word blessed we see at the start of verse 1, and again at the start of verse 2, frames what this whole psalm is about. The destination the psalmist is pointing us towards. You know, nowadays when we talk about being blessed, we normally have in mind some narrow view of divine favour, some specific request that we want granted. Like, I'm so blessed to have a wonderful family or wonderful friends or a wonderful career. It's such a blessing to live in a place like Vancouver or dear God, please bless us with great health and financial security. These are good things, but, but the, in the Bible, the word blessed means much more than this narrow view of divine favor. As one scholar put it, it refers to happiness, but not the fleeting temporary emotion of happiness, but a state of true happiness and flourishing. And isn't that the destination we're all, we all want to head towards in life? No one ever says, do what makes you unhappy. 
No one ever says, do what makes you miserable. No, the mantra of our culture is, do what makes you happy. You see, we all have the same destination we want to hit towards. But here's where the wisdom of God's word takes a different direction from the shortcut that our culture tries to take us. Our culture says, you decide what makes you happy. You do whatever you need to do to be happy. God's word and its wisdom says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Our culture says happiness is doing whatever and being whoever we want to be. God's word says true happiness and flourishing can only be found in a relationship with God. A relationship that we can only have through the forgiveness of sin. You see, we can't talk about happiness and a relationship with God without talking about sin. So what is sin? Some of you would have noticed in our passage that the psalmist actually uses three different words to talk about sin. The words in our passage have been translated as transgression, sin, and iniquity. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. They refer to the same thing, but they, they all have slightly different meanings. The word transgression focuses on the guilt within each of us that comes from deliberately doing something wrong. The word sin is a, is a more formal description of wrongdoing, describing it as deviating from or departing from a moral law or God's will. The word iniquity refers to rebellion, outright defiance of God's holy lordship and rule over the world and all of us. You see, we often use one word, sin, to describe all these three terms. But the psalmist here uses three different words to signify the totality of our sin and wrongdoing against God. See, what he's saying is that we've deliberately chosen to do wrong and so are burdened with guilt within. What we've done has deviated from, departed from God's moral law and his holy will for our lives. And we've all rebelled against God's rightful place as Lord of our lives, choosing instead to be the Lord of our own lives. See, the Bible clearly links the topic of our happiness with the topic of our sin. But these days, it's, it's not really in fashion to talk about sin anymore, is it? Our culture has come to deny and, and sometimes to even glorify sin and, and it's often hostile to those who would even dare to use categories of sin. How many of us would be afraid to use the terms transgression or sin or iniquity with our non-Christian friends? Actually, perhaps even with our Christian friends. Because apart from God, out of the hardness of our hearts, we and the culture around us are attracted to darkness instead of light. And we lust, we desire after sin and impurity. We do this so much so that God's holiness, His goodness, His moral perfection, His complete intolerance of sin has been twisted to become something that we see as bad. But Psalm 32 is quite clear. We must not be afraid. We must not shirk from talking about sin because the only road to happiness is forgiveness of sin. There is no shortcut. There is no other way. If we want to live a blessed life, if we want to live in a state of true happiness and flourishing, the only way is to be in a relationship with the Holy God. 
And the only way to be in such a relationship with such a God is the forgiveness of our sins. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That is the only way. But so often we try to take a shortcut and go down the wrong way by staying silent about sin and pretending that sin isn't there. That's the second point for, for, for us this morning. Verses 3 and 4 describe the psalmist's attempt to take such a shortcut, to, take, to go down this wrong way and talks about the consequence of his unconfessed sin. Verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You know, there are often two ways we try to stay silent about our sin. We deny or we pretend. Sometimes you try to deny that what we did was a sin in the first place. You see, we we take what scripture says and then we try to twist it to say what we wanted to say so that we can justify what we want to do. We try to find some article, some book, some podcast, some preacher, some church that, that gives us an interpretation of scripture that we want so that we can do what we want to do. And when we can't find a way to twist scripture to say what we wanted to say, we then try to pretend like the sin never happened. Because if nobody sees, then nobody knows, then we think nobody cares. You know, one of the shows I watched growing up here um, on and off was, was Mr. Bean. In the Mr. Bean movie, there's a scene where he's at an art museum and he's admiring this prized painting. And as he's admiring, you just know what's going to happen, don't you? He sneezes on the painting and the paint starts to run. And so he tries to cover up his mistake by, by, trying, to, by trying to clean it off. But then he smudges the painting. And so he, then, he tries to clean it off some more, but he ends up erasing some part of the painting. And then he tries to cover that up by, by, by drawing over it. And then we're left with this ridiculous result of cover-up after cover-up after cover-up. What makes this scene comical is that we, the audience, have front row seats to Mr. Bean's repeated ridiculous attempts at covering up his mistake. But in a far less funny way, isn't that how it is between us and God? Except we're the ones who are trying to do the cover-up. And all this while, God sees everything from start to end. And more than an audience at a movie... God knows our hearts inside and out. We can never cover up our sins and so we should never even try to stay silent about our sins either by denying them or pretending that they're not there because God sees everything. Even when we think no one else does, God sees, God knows and let's be clear, God cares. God cares about our sin. Christ City, what are the sins we've been trying to cover up? What are the sins we've been trying to stay silent about? Something we said, something we thought, something we did, something we felt, something we desired, something we watched. We can't keep any secrets from God. 
Some of you may have noticed already that in, in verse 3 that the psalmist shifts to talk directly to God. Because when it comes to sin, we deal directly with God. We are utterly exposed. There's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. There are no shortcuts when it comes to sin. God knows our every sin and until our sins have been forgiven, we'll feel the unbearable weight and heat of that guilt of our sin on our souls. You know, sometimes that weight may be so intense that it may have physical symptoms, bones wasting away through our groaning all day long. The psalmist describes it. Sometimes it may be spiritual symptoms with the heaviness of God's hands, hand on our hearts and the heat of our guilt on our souls. The second half of verse 4 is not too difficult for us to relate to, is it? My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. We all remember that heat wave last week, don't we? When there was no escaping the relentless heat that was just everywhere. That's how it is with unconfessed sin. There's no escaping its heat on our souls. And actually, I don't need to go into more details, do I? Because we've all been there, haven't we? In fact, some of us are still there right now. Christ City, what are the sins that we've been trying to hide? Who of us are still laboring under the burden and guilt and weight and heat of unconfessed sin and guilt on our souls? Who of us are trying to hide or run away from God? That's the wrong way. We can't run away. We can't cover our sin. We can't hide from God because there is no shortcut. So which way do we go? There's only one right way to true happiness and flourishing and it starts with acknowledgement and confession of our sins. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. All of us, every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of, the God, of God's glory, His goodness and His moral perfection. We've all deliberately done what was wrong. We've all deviated from, departed from God's will and moral law. We've all rebelled against God's lordship and rule over our lives. And deep down, no matter how silent we've tried to be, no matter how much we've tried to deny or pretend that, that the sin never happened, we know that we've sinned because we've all felt the weight and heat of our sin and guilt on our souls. This weight and heat, while it doesn't feel like it, is actually a gift. Because only when we're convicted of our sin will we look for the saviour we so desperately need. Only when we accept that we're sick will we look for the doctor that, who can give us the cure. And this is the cure. It starts with acknowledgement and confession of our sins. Acknowledging and confessing our sins means, means bringing it out into the light. Acknowledging and confessing that God has the right to be the Lord of our lives. That He is the only one who has the right to tell us how to live. That we fail to live as we ought. And so we accept full responsibility for everything that we've done. It's not like those public figures in the media 
who say, I'm sorry if what I did offended anyone. I didn't mean to. It was taking the wrong way. I was tired and I was sick and it was the medication that made me do something and it was actually that other person's fault and whoever knows me knows that I'm not that kind of person. No, that's not the way we confess and repent. That's not what true confession repentance looks like. No, we come to God without any excuses because He knows what really happened and sees through all our excuses. And we confess everything to Him because He already knows everything, even our hearts. You see, we can come to God accepting complete responsibility without excuses because we are assured of complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. Whatever we've done, everything we've done, completely forgiven. Look at me at verse 5. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Because God sees, God knows, God cares about our sin, but then he doesn't just stop there. God forgives. He forgives completely every single sin and so we can confess every single sin to him. It's like, it's like the other week, um, the Vancouver Public Library had a campaign to forgive library fines. If you've missed it, I'm afraid the campaign is already over. But whatever fines or outstanding charges during the campaign that you owe the library, if you go up to them, they'll completely forgive and waive whatever money you owed. If I, forg- if I owe $10, they'll forgive the $10 fine. If I owe $100, they will forgive and waive the $100 fine. Complete forgiveness. I don't have to pay anything. Now, during the campaign, I don't think we'll find anyone trying to hide how much they owe the library. Because why would they? If you owe $100, you wouldn't go to the library trying to hide part of the $100 that you owe them. You'd be completely open about everything you owe, the entire sum, the entire $100, because you have full assurance that any amount will be forgiven, no matter how big or how small. And that's the same thing with God. Why would, why would we hide any part of our sin from Him when we're assured we have full confidence of complete forgiveness? Any sin, too, no sin is too big or too small. We can be assured that God will not count any of our sins against us. So then the question about complete forgiveness turns to the question of how? Who pays the cost of forgiveness? Everyone, including the library, wants the library to forgive money owed, but then who bears the cost? Who pays the cost of buying more books? Who pays for the repairs? Forgiveness always means cost. And so we must be clear here, when God forgives sin, there is still a cost to sin. A world with wrongdoing but no consequences is a world without justice. When verse 2 says that God does not count sin against us, it's not saying that sin doesn't count, but that our Saviour doesn't count it against us. I'll say that again. When Scripture says that God does not count sin against us, it's not saying that sin doesn't count, but that God does not count it against us. Because God counted it against himself. On the cross, Jesus bore all the weight and heat of sin that we deserved. 
so that we might be forgiven, so that we might live into the blessed life of true happiness and flourishing that can only come by being in a relationship with Him. Forgiveness always costs something. something. And so when we see how sinful we are, only then we see how merciful God is. How much He loves us and how much it costs Him to pay the price of our sins so that He could forgive us. Only when we're convicted of our sin will we see our need for a saviour and what a saviour he is, Christ City. Sin and holiness are often seen as dirty words because they're often talked about only in terms of judgment but not in terms of love and mercy. But what a saviour we have. (laughs) Jesus is our loving saviour who is both just and merciful. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross solved the mystery of the ages. The question we may be asking ourselves when we read Psalm 32, how could God be both merciful in forgiving sins and still remain just in not allowing sin to go unpunished, ensuring that the cost of sins were paid? The answer is in God's holiness. God's holiness, His being set apart from us, means that He is so good that we can trust him completely to judge every sin and to right every wrong on earth. But God's holiness means that he is so good that we can trust him completely to forgive us our sins, even at the cost of his own life. You see, God, our Savior, calls us to confess our sins, not so that he can gloat about how good he is, not so that he can make us suffer and punish us for how terrible we are, No, God calls us to confess our sins so that he might forgive us. So that we might live a life of true happiness and flourishing in light of his goodness and steadfast love. He calls us to confess our sins out of his love and mercy for our good and our joy. Such is our saviour. In the words of John Piper, that he is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. He calls us not to cover our sins because only He can cover our sins. He calls us not to hide from Him so that He might be our hiding place, that He might preserve us from trouble and surround us with shouts of deliverance. So what do we do with all this? How do we apply this? Let me address two groups in the room. The first are those of us who don't confess our sins often because we've confessed our sins before and so we think that we don't need to do it again. Well, the Psalms together are like a set of spiritual exercises that God has given us. A set of exercises that bring us through the different ways that we are to exercise our prayers and how we relate to God, including praise, confession, lament, thanksgiving, Expressions of confidence, expressions of wisdom, remembrance, and kingship. And it's important that we pray in each of these different ways because they reflect the richness of our relationship with God. Because God is not just someone that we go to ask for things when we want stuff. He's the one we praise, the one we, the one we confess our sins to, the one we lament to, the one we lament with the one we thank, the one we base our confidence in, the one who is wise, the one we remember, the one who is our true king. 
Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. You know, it's so tempting for us to be like the horse or the mule without understanding. It's so tempting for us just to stay where we're comfortable and pray the prayers we're comfortable with rather than to open us up, open ourselves up to the discomfort of instruction. For myself, if I'm not careful, if I just stay where I'm comfortable and pray the prayers that I'm comfortable and familiar with, the vast majority of my prayers end up just thanking God for what He's given me and then asking Him to give me more. Psalm 32 is a reminder of the importance of one of the more unfamiliar and uncomfortable exercises for most of us, that of confession. We need to be clear though, as those who have been justified by faith, for those of us who have already been made right with God, we don't confess in order to have a relationship with God, but as part of our relationship with Him. Because the moment we put our faith in God, and confess and repent of our sins. Our sins in the past, present, and future have already been forgiven, and our standing with God is secure and will never change. But living with Jesus as our Lord is not a one-off destination, but the start of a lifelong relationship. A relationship characterized by faith, confession, and repentance. As we live out this, this relationship till the day we're standing with God face to face, we will still sin and unconfessed sin, while not affecting our standing with God, will affect our relationship with Him. And in our relationship with God, as we get a taste of, of the blessings of His holiness and, and, and we taste of the joy of His goodness, we then become more and more aware of other sin in us, Sin that is revealed to us by God's word and his spirit. Sin which we then want nothing more than to confess because we want more of that joy we've tasted. The joy that can only come with confession of sin and becoming more like Christ. And so then we confess this sin. We confess it with thanksgiving and in full assurance that we've already been forgiven. So if you say, I'm already a Christian, why should I confess? The answer is this, because you're a Christian, that's why you confess. For the joy that can only come from being in a relationship with God and the joy that comes from becoming more and more like Him. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The second group of us are those who don't confess because we think we're too far away from God. We don't confess because we think we can't. There's no point. We think to ourselves, you don't know what I've done. I'm beyond God's forgiveness. You know, I started this sermon by, by asking the question, where are you going? And to some of us, the honest answer is, I don't know. I like to end with an, by reading an extract from a story that's been very precious to me. When they went back to the bus, the girl sat with Vingo again. And after a while, slowly and painfully, 
With great hesitation, he began to tell his story. He'd been in jail in New York for the past four years, and now he was going home. Are you married? She asked him. I don't know. You don't know? She asked. Well, when I was in prison, I wrote to my wife, he said. I told her, I said, Martha, I understand if you can't stay married to me. I told her that. I said I was going to be away a long time, and that if she couldn't stand it, if the kids kept asking questions, if it hurt her too much, well, she could just forget me. Get a new guy. She's a wonderful woman, really something. And just forget about me and move on. I told her she didn't have to write me or nothing. And she didn't. Not for three and a half years. And you're going home now? Not knowing? Yes, he said shyly. Well, last week when I was sure the parole was coming through, I wrote her. I told her that if she had a new guy, I understood. But if she didn't, if she would take me back, she should just let me know. We used to live in, we used to live in this town, Brunswick, just before Jacksonville. And there's a big oak tree just as you come into town. A very famous tree, huge. I told her that if she'd take me back, she should put a yellow ribbon on the tree and I'd get off and come home. If she didn't want me, forget it. No ribbon and I'd go through. Wow, the girl said. Wow. She told the others and soon all of them were in it, caught up in the approach of Brunswick, looking at the pictures Vingo showed them of his wife and three children. Now they were 20 miles from Brunswick and the young people took over window seats on the right side, waiting for the approach of the great oak tree. Vingo stopped looking, tightening his face into the ex-con's mask as if fortifying himself against still yet another disappointment. And then 20 miles became 10 miles. And then five. And the bus acquired a dark, hushed tone, full of silence of absence. Then suddenly, all the young people were up out of their seats, screaming and shouting and crying, doing small dances, shaking clenched fists in triumph and exaltation. All except Vingo. Vingo sat there, stunned, looking at the oak tree. It was covered with yellow ribbons, 20 of them, 30 of them, maybe hundreds of them. A tree that stood there like a banner of welcome, blowing and billowing in the wind turning into a gorgeous yellow blur by the passing bus. As the young people cheered and shouted, the old con rose from his seat, holding himself tightly, and made his way to the front of the bus to go home. Christ City, what a saviour we have. Our God is a God of second chances. No one is ever too far away. No one is ever beyond his complete forgiveness. Instead of putting yellow ribbons on a tree, it was, it was his own son he put on the tree as a payment for the cost of our sin and as a reminder of the forgiveness he's earned for us. When we are confronted by our sin, when we don't know where we are, when we despair at the weight of the guilt and heat of our sin and judgment, never ever think that your sin is beyond forgiveness or that it's too late. What a saviour we have. 
God put his own son up on the tree telling us that whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever shortcuts you've tried to take, wherever you've head, you're headed, wherever you are right now, no matter how far away from God you think you are, you can come home. Come home into a life of true happiness and joy, surrounded by the steadfast love of our just and loving and merciful Saviour. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, it is, we come before you first confessing our sins. The sins that we know about, that no one else knows about. Our secret sins, the sins we've tried to cover up. And Lord, we come to you saying, we're sorry. Would you cover up our sins? Would you give us the joy of being in a relationship with you? Not because we deserve it, not because sins don't count, not because sins don't cost anything, but because you counted it against yourself. And on the cross, you sent your son to pay the full cost of our sins so that we may be completely forgiven and live the blessed life of true happiness and joy. Amen. If you're watching this with your house church, it's time to get ready for communion. Communion is to be celebrated in community with all of, our, all of those who live under the Lordship of Christ. The bread and the wine remind us of how Jesus gave up his life, his body to be broken, and his blood to be shed, paying the cost of our sins so that we might be completely forgiven. If you're not a Christian, then this is not for you. But we can't wait to celebrate communion with you for the first time. Because... Jesus has paid the price for all of us. God bless.